Hi, amiguis. We have a brand new episode of Tamarindo dropping next week. But to hold you over, we invite you to revisit our chat with comedian, actor, and writer Aida Rodriguez. We love Aida for many reasons, but her thoughts on colorism in the Latino community are particularly urgent to revisit given recent news in Los Angeles where Latino leaders were at the center of racist backroom power brokering. This episode first aired in February. Stay tuned for new episodes coming your way soon. Welcome to Tamarindo Podcast, hosted by me, Brenda Gonzalez, a political nerd and nonprofit capacity builder, and me, Ana Sheila Victorino, a queer well-being enthusiast and mindset coach. We are a Latinx empowerment podcast discussing politics, culture, and how to keep your calma with well-being practices and self-love. Welcome to the show. Buenas, buenas, amiguis. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Here we are again. ¿Cómo estás, Brenda? ¿Qué pasa? What's been going on with you? Uh, well, I'm super excited about today's episode. So I'll just say that I'm excited and that I'm bummed out that I tried to buy tickets to um, to my favorite comedy show, which is Women Crush Wednesday, because actually our guest that we have today is going to be performing. And I could only buy one ticket, which means I was probably going to be the very last one to buy it. But I didn't want to go by myself, so I'm going to miss out on that show. Oh, ¿Qué pasa contigo? Well, I'm having a bit, it's been a little bit of a tough morning because yesterday my dog got high. Oh, whoopsies. <laughs> well, first of all, this is the first time I've ever, you know, ordered weed or any kind of, you know, drugs here in Mexico. My cousin has a plug. So I reached out. I was all nervous because I've never done this before. And I don't know the Spanish words. So I was like Googling how to say different <laughs> things. It was hilarious. <laughs> but anyways, finally we got our stuff. We got some cookies and I, um, put the cookies next to, you know, my side of the bed. Didn't think anything of it. And then yesterday afternoon, you know, I go into the bedroom and I first see the first sign of terror, like in the bathroom, the dog has gone in and taken everything out of the trash. And oh, then no. <laughs> I look over to the bed area and I see the paper bag where I knew the cookies were. It was fully ripped open. The only thing that was left were crumbs. And there were previously still three cookies left. Oh no. oh no. So yeah. So we freaked out a little bit. That's, you know, that's never happened. And so we walked over to the vet and the vet thankfully was like, you know, you've got a big dog, you know, it's three cookies. They usually don't have all that much in them. <laughs> You're going to be fine. But the dog who normally is super, super active, super crazy was just struggling to walk around a little bit. Definitely just laid out for most of the afternoon, um, woke us up early this morning and threw up a little bit. So oh, I think, pobrecito. I know. <laughs> oh my God. But the worst is done, but I see like, I'd never seen it. It's almost, it's like, I almost want him to be crazy. Cause I've never seen him be this chill before. It's like, this oh, is no. what we were asking pobrecito. for, but no, así. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, Hilarious. Yeah. So that's, that's what, what we've been dealing with yesterday and today. But, you know, you know, kids know. <laughs> are perrijos. I are definitely perrijos. know. <laughs> but I mean, I can't imagine what would that have been like if it was like little children that ate our wheat cookies. So just oh a goodness, reminder for terrifying. myself to, 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 you know, you this is practice for, for babies. There's things you can't let happen when you have real human babies and ideally not with your dogs either. So <laughs> luckily our dog's going to be OK. 
anyway, um, so yeah, I'm also along with you, Brenda, super excited today um, about our guest. So we have comedian, actor, and writer Aida Rodriguez. She recently had her own comedy special premiere on HBO Max and also has several exciting projects, including her own TV series. So super chingona. She's hilarious. Uh, but beyond that, her story is remarkable. Like she has overcome so much trauma and adversity to be where she is. And uh, you get to you get to learn a little bit about this in the HBO special, which I really recommend y'all watch. Uh, it's really beautiful because it's you get to you get a glimpse of you know what she's been through. She actually in the special she gets to go to Dominican Republic where her dad is from. She meets him for the first time. So it's a really beautiful, powerful, hilarious special. And you know it was just it's just beautiful to see how comedy was her vehicle through her adversity. And, you know, that made me start thinking about how comedy often is a tool that a lot of people use to, to cope to, you know, people say laughter is a, the best medicine. So I was thinking a lot about that. And, and I was curious, Brenda, you know, what's your relationship with comedy? What, what is comedy for, for you? Well, and I've said this many times on this show, but I am, I like going to live comedy shows, especially when it's women, especially when it's women of color. So I've had the fortune of seeing Aida Rodriguez live in person. I often talk about Marcela Arguello. I've been going to these comedy shows for the past several several years, you know, pre-pandemic, <laughs> going pretty regularly to the point where like the comics recognize me. <laughs> so I, I love live comedy and I spe- specifically women of color because they kill it. They're 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 really fantastic. But as you propose this question and framing it with the way that Ida used the vehicle of comedy to work through trauma and you know life. It makes me think of my mom because both my parents, as folks might know, experienced the loss of a child, my brother who passed away. But I think my mom and dad together collectively, they've had a lot of challenges, a lot of adversity, but my mom has a really dry sense of humor. And so despite a lot of the challenges and a lot of the trauma, my mom is an example of somebody that can laugh through it, you know, you know can, can find humor and comedy in, in life. And so that's why I think about when I think about comedy. What about for you? What has been the relationship mm. of comedy for you? So, well, real quick, I just want to say, you know, I'm, I'm, you're, I, I think you're very funny, Brenda, and I'm, I'm curious how you describe your humor. Would you say it's dry? Is it sort of based in, in the, the humor of your parents? Maybe a little bit. My mom is definitely way drier, like so much, like, yeah, like she's, she's cruel sometimes, but it's hilarious. Like it's, it's always on point. <laughs> I hope, and um, I really enjoy what comes up on the fly for me. So I hope that I'm witty. I think being witty is totally the most awesome trait that somebody can have. So that's what I aspire for. If I could be witty and I, and I like that in Jeff, for example, my awesome, amazing husband, producer Jeff, he's so freaking witty. So we just crack each other up all day long. So that's what I like. Yeah, I can see that. Um, well, for me, I think what I was thinking about this question I, I grew up with comedy as, as a form of storytelling and, you know, our family would get together and what people would do is like, they would tell jokes and the jokes were usually stories. You know, they had like a, a beginning, um, the buildup and then the punchline, 
you know, so it was a lot of that that I grew up with as storytelling. So that's that's sort of what what I remember, and and also um, just my my parents too. Both of them were very funny, uh, different kind of funny. My mom, I think she's a witty, she's a witty funny. Like she's always like, you know, things will just be happening, and she just is like right there with it. Like she's got like as soon as there is an opening for a possible joke. Like she's on it. So I think she's kind of that, that, that witty comedic type of energy and, and yeah, she's definitely the funniest in our family. So I, I, I admire, I admire her. I wish I was as funny as she was. But one thing I was thinking about is, um, we weren't really much of a roasting family, at least not on my mom's side, which is the, the, the side that I grew up with. And I feel like culturally roasting is a lot of, is comedy, how people use comedy, especially a lot in, in our communities. And I'm curious what, if that was something that was used a lot. Oh, for sure. The Gonzalez part of my family is all about roasting each other. <laughs> In fact, something that I've learned um, now, here's the thing. When you're a kid, you're kind of shielded from all like the, the tensions and drama that happen within the, with the adults. But now that you're an adult, you kind of get cued into some of the, some of the tension and drama. So one thing that I've learned is that my my dad is one of six and they're mostly boys. There's the youngest one was a girl, like the Amitia Paulina. They all clown on each other. But apparently uh, one of my uncles was felt bullied, like he felt straight up bullied. And that has uh, manifested into distance now as adults. So that's something that I that I learned. So, yeah, the clowning can be fun. But as, uh, as some of our listeners have shared is that consensual clowning is the best. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I was thinking about the roasting thing and like whether that's healthy, whether it is that toxic or not. And I think it's like just being, if you feel safe, like if you feel safe in love, then I think roasting can just be funny. But I think when it starts to get toxic, if it's like, like you said, if it's not consensual and the person doesn't feel like safe and loved like the way they want to in their relations, I guess. That's sort of what I was thinking about. But um, I didn't grow up with roasting on the side of my family that I grew up with. And so part of me coming back to Mexico is also like a little bit like I want to connect more with my dad's side, which I think is a little bit more roasting just so I can get at least slightly tougher skin (laughs) than I grew up with. (laughs) Um, Let's hear from the professionals. Who do we have today again? And, And I can't wait to hear from her. Yeah, we've got Aida Rodriguez, and we're super excited to get into this conversation, where, as always, she keeps it super real, vulnerable, and inspiring, and we hope you enjoy it. We have the honor of having comedian, actor, and writer Aida Rodriguez with us on Tamarindo today. Aida, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. My honor to be here. Gracias, gracias. So I want to get started uh, with a quote. So uh, Esquire magazine wrote about you. This is Rodriguez's genius, using comedy to turn pain into progress, to give voice to the voiceless and to laugh instead of cry. So I have to say I had the joy of watching your um, stand-up special on HBO Max and your story is remarkable. Wow. And not only am I glad that you have this platform to use in so many different ways, and I'm just rooting for you to have all the things, honestly. And, and so I want to know how accurately does this quote describe what comedy is and means for you? And, and can you tell us a little bit about your journey with comedy? Uh, well, first of all, thank you. That's a, um, a beautiful compliment. Um, you know, I would say that the quote is pretty accurate. Um, one of the mechanisms that we've had from places like where I'm from is laughter and comedy as a way to deal with our pain. Um, you hear a lot of comedians talk about stuff like that. And, you know, it's healing for me to see other people feel seen 
if that makes sense. So when I talk about things that other people are ashamed to talk about that we don't normally have the discourse because it, it makes us feel small, I, uh, I discovered that along the way that it does the opposite. Once you let it out, you set yourself free and uh, you can actually deal with the pain and the hardships. Um, so yeah, that's that's been my method and it's been uh, quite a, a journey. My style of comedy um, is something that's not usually celebrated in women. Um, you know, uh, I'm very confrontational, so some people think it's a bit too much. Uh, Latino men, in particular, are not on the my biggest fan group, which can be painful sometimes when your own people do you that way. But, um, you know, it's it's been a journey. It's been a very interesting road for me. Um, comedy has never come easy for me, but it's something that I really like to do. And so I made a decision. My mantra is the universe agrees with a made-up mind. So I made... I made a choice that this is what I was going to do and that I was going to excel at it. And it's been tough. You know, comedy is really hard on marginalized people Um, and women, especially if you put us in those groups, it's really hard. It's a boys club and you feel a lot of that while you're in it. But I don't have time to worry about that or focus on that. I have work to do. So that's always been my attitude. I feel that. Um, I think there was probably a point at which you finally made that choice to to say, like, I'm really going to pursue this. This is like, I don't know if it, if it feels like a calling, but there was a point at which you decided I'm going for this. I, I'm curious, mm-hmm. like what, how that actually took shape. And and because a lot of times, a lot of us have dreams, things we kind of want to mm-hmm. do that we, that never materialize. Right. What was right. that point for you? What, how did that come to be? I always try to learn something from everything that I come across. And when it comes to the Bible, I listened to a lot of the, I paid attention to a lot of the things that were being said and the symbolism. Um, Though I'm not a super religious person, but the Bible says seek wise counsel. And all books, all books of faith have that same sentiment, whether it's expressed differently. Um, I think a lot of times when you feel something is really big that you want to do and you don't have the information, you don't know, you have to go to the source, right? And so uh, it was a comedian, his name is Chris Spencer, who directed me to the first steps because it can be so overwhelming. Your dream can feel so big, but really it is a function of taking one step at a time to get where you want to go. And just figuring out what those first steps are for you. And for me, it was open mics. And so even though when I remember, I can think about it now, I would never be able to imagine being here back then because it seems so far away. But I just focused on the steps. And um, for me, it was actually really going to go do the open mics. Now, mind you, when I first started doing stand-up, I started it as a hobby and an escape from my real life, from my, you know, a lot of stuff was happening in my life. And I also had a full-time job. It was cathartic for me. It was something that I would do uh, to release. And it was something I never thought would turn into um, me being able to make a living off of it. But it did because I honored it by you know, 
going into it seriously. And even if it was a hobby for me, it was I would never choose to do anything unless I was going to do it 100%. And so, um, yeah, it became, it went from being a hobby to supplemental income to my income and my life and lifestyle. Yeah, that's so powerful. Um, I, but I started writing the jokes first. Yeah. I, I forget. Before I even went to an open mic, I had no, a notebook full of jokes. And I went to a comedian who was a friend of mine to help me uh, structure the jokes and learn how you write jokes because it's not just you going on stage and saying whatever you want because you think it's right. <laughs> so the, the steps were like that. I, I wrote the jokes. Then I went to the open mics and there was a process. I love what you share about how it wasn't like, cause sometimes I think when we have these dreams, we have these big dreams and they seem so overwhelming. And so we're paralyzed. And so it's important to figure out, okay, this is my big dream. That's cool. Yeah. But like I, you need to break it down into these small steps or otherwise you're going to stay paralyzed forever. Cause you're not going to like the hardest part. I mean, it's so cheesy, but it, I've realized the hardest part really is just starting. <laughs> Yeah. And it's everything like, uh, you know, I have my 10 year goals and my five year goals, but uh, those goals are nothing without the three month goals and the six month goals. Like it's they're all steps. And that big thing that you're looking for going backwards to where you are now and figuring out what needs to happen to get there. For me, I think a lot of some people can be very spontaneous with what they do. Um, and I, I can be pretty, you know, pretty whimsical, but I have to have a strategy because that makes me feel empowered knowing that there are steps. And if I'm taking the steps, then there's progress. Yeah. So I sit down and I write it all down. I also love that you say that you help people be seen for some reason. Sometimes as humans, we can get caught up thinking we're the only person experiencing this one thing that when like, there are so many people that experience pain and grief, different kinds of pain and grief. I think it's important to write about what you're, what you've experienced in life, even if you never plan to share it with anybody else to get it out of your body. Um, and if you can't read or write, uh, speak it into your phone, speak it into your, you know, your voice, uh, thing on your phone and listen back to it. Just get it out of your body to figure out what you want to do with it. There are a lot of people who experience things that millions of people go through and feel like they're alone in it. You know, being sexually abused, um, be, have, uh, being a victim of sexual assault. There's so many things that make you feel like you're in it by yourself. And then hearing somebody else who appears to be successful to you, whether you know their life or not, because if you're on HBO Max, people think you, you know, you got it or whatever, but it, uh, it, it frees you because it lets you know that if this person got through it, I'm not alone. And this person is not afraid to talk about it. This person is not afraid to give it a voice. I think it's important to do that for one another. Those of us who feel uh, comfortable enough to talk about our traumas and our pain. We do give voice to those who don't feel emboldened enough to do that. And that's just part of taking care of your village. Um, women, we have all been, you know, not all, but many of us have been um, oppressed, treated poorly, sexually abused, all of the traumas that come with womanhood. And I think that as part of taking care of our our community as women, 
sometimes we got to speak up when we feel empowered enough to do so, so that those people who don't have the mic can get, uh, you know, can, can be heard and seen. And so for me, it's bigger than just me. Yes. I love that. Taking care of our village and, and knowing that, um, it takes a lot of work to be able to get to the point where you can share and you have a platform. And when you do, it's like, absolutely. You got to do it. (laughs) Yeah. No, I could, I mean, I watched some of my, uh, you know, some of my colleagues and people who are not just comedians, but people who are performers and entertainers. And I hear these people talking about, you know, fame and what it is to be successful to them. And so much of it is connected to being around other famous people and buying expensive things and, you know, living lavish lives and having, uh, you know, flawless skin and a brand new car or a Birkin bag. And then you can look into those people if you really look good enough. You can see all the holes and all of the voids because no one who really feels good about themselves ever feels like they have to try to prove it. So um, for me, it's just a grand waste of time because I'm human just like everybody else and I go through it all the time. So I feel like um, it better serves me and my soul as a person and the people who look up to me and look at me for direction or whatever to just be honest and be real about the experience. I don't want to be alienated from my audience. I want to be connected to them. And so when people ask me like, yes, somebody asked me in an interview, if I wanted, if I had a choice to be Muhammad Ali or Michael Jackson, who would I be? Who would I choose to be? And I, I'm a Muhammad Ali fanatic. So I said Muhammad Ali. But I had to think about it. And I was like, you know, while Michael Jackson (laughs) ran from his fans, Muhammad Ali walked with his. And that is that is why he was a citizen of the world, why everybody loved him. He used his uh, his sport to make an impact politically. He made he took a stand socially for his people and will forever be respected and honored for that. And that really resonates with me. So. Um, I think being real and being accessible and being honest about my journey as a human is what keeps me connected to that village that I talk about because we are village people. So um, for me, it's always going to be about living in the truth. I love that. No matter how hard and ugly it can be, you know? Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Um, that gave me chills. I think whoever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever, however kind of, whatever kind of money you're making, like walk, like continuing to walk with your gente, with your people, with your community, staying connected. Absolutely. Yeah, it's important. Cause at the end of the day, you know, I, um, I was thinking about it. I had COVID over the holidays. I'm still battling. I'm not, if, if I seem a little like uh, subdued, it's because I'm still battling with some health stuff, some post-COVID effects. And um, I got to tell you that while I was down, I wouldn't, I didn't think about a purse, shoes, an outfit. I didn't think about, you know, an event, a red carpet. I didn't think about a car. All I thought about was, you know, uh, we lost a lot of people to this and, some people were healthy or seemed to be healthy. Some people were young, some people younger than me, some people stronger than me, some people in better shape than me. And you never know. And all I kept thinking about and, uh, and my, my 
all of my energy was in healing and being around for the people who matter to me. And I didn't think about anything superficial. I didn't, I didn't care about how I looked. And I was in like, oh, look at my hair, look at my face. Not that I do that on a regular basis anyway, because I don't. But I was just really like, it just really was sobering for me that I was thinking, we're so preoccupied with what's, with fame and, and wealth. And when you think about someone like Steve Jobs, who had so much and wasn't able to live past cancer because cancer doesn't discriminate, it just it's just very important for someone like me to stay on the ground because that's what keeps me going. Like if once I start floating, you know, I have people around me that will bring me back and be like, hey, hey. but because uh, it's important to have that. It's just when I'm on the ground is when I'm best. It's when I'm most effective and more useful to not just me, but those around me y la gente, because right. what's it all for? What's the what's the point of having it all if it's just you? Yes, yes. Um, that's beautiful. And I and I hope I want to keep sending, we want to keep sending you healing vibes. I hope you feel 100 again soon, también. I appreciate that. Thank you. So I want to pivot a little bit. I feel like we're in an interesting moment when it comes to the broader Latinx community. You know, a few decades ago, we were brought together under this umbrella term of Hispanic, really like for political and advocacy clout. The idea was if we come together, we can have a louder voice in advocating for our communities. And while that was and does continue to be true in some regards, right? A lot has happened since then. Our language Mm -hmm. continues to evolve. And there's also been some negative consequences as well as pushback that have gotten louder based on this grouping. You know, there's pushback around grouping so many disparate groups with different experiences especially because of the impact that it's had on on Black and Indigenous people. So I want to ask you, um, what have all the shifts and new discourse been like for you when it comes to navigating your own identity and then also how you take up space and and use your platform? So for me, it's been interesting because my grandmother was a Black woman. And so my whole life, I was always um, Afro-Latina. And, you know, it's interesting to see it become a term and become a trend later, but that's just how we were raised. And with a lot of Latinx people that you see, Latinos, Latine, um, you'll see a lot of people who are of lighter hues call themselves Afro-Latinx, Latinos, because specifically in places like Puerto Rico, that is, the word negra is used as a term of endearment, it's about... It isn't about um, as dark as you are. Now, I say all of that to say that does not undo that mistreatment of people of a darker hue, because that is also a reality. But for someone like me who grew up where the grandmother who told all of us we were Black so that nobody would think they were better than anybody, no matter where you were on the color wheel, it was like, ustedes toditos son negro. Ay, ya se acabó. And that was, that was what she did because of the, her own pain that she experienced because of the colorism that occurred in her life, she was like, I'm going I'm to nip all of this in the bud. I'm going to have you thinking you better than her. And so now as we evolve and we get into, you know, a time where the pain of darker skinned Latinos, Latinx people is being heard and you hear them saying, it, when you call yourself Afro-Latina, it erases me. It's my responsibility to hear that because the truth of it is, is that that's what happens. And, you know, 
the our community is not where the black community is. This is a conversation that black Americans had 20, 30 years ago, whereas Halle Berry's black and Viola Davis is black. And though we're able to tell, be honest about the fact that colorism exists, the blackness is not denied to either of them. But in our community, we get into texturism, we get into, you know, the level of people's skin. And so how do you navigate that and honor the people who have been hurt as a result of this? Mind you, we all got our own hurt, right? Because if we're not white, we got to be honest. And and I don't have the right to un- to take away somebody's or to minimalize somebody's pain because it doesn't look like mine. You know, my sister is way lighter than I am. And she's had her own challenges about how she's been treated. I just think we don't have nuanced conversations anymore. So it's either one thing or the other. And I refuse to engage in that or be bullied by it. Because the truth of it is, is that white supremacy and oppression and racism is real. And it comes for all of us who are not white and who are specifically not Anglo. And if you want to even go there, white men, because white women have also been sent to the back by their own men. So it's just, it's so complicated. So to just paint it with a broad stroke is ignorant and and vapid and, and devoid of substance and doesn't have, doesn't play with someone like me. But because I hear, I hear the pain of, of my brothers and sisters, I've changed the way I identify from Afro-Latina to Afro-Indigenous because I am very connected to my Indigenous roots. My great-grandfather, um, Sixto Alamo, who I grew up with, was... Um, Taino, Arawak, you know, and he was very uh, knowledgeable about where we come from. And I have that information that a lot of people don't have, which is in my special. The the cutouts that I had on my outfit were Taino symbols um, to honor my great grandfather and my ancestors. So I I just uh, this is a very complicated space. It's very radioactive because there's a lot of pain around it. And I decided to use my voice to to speak about it. I get a lot of pushback um, from a lot of people and I refuse to let that bully me into a corner where I don't talk about it. Because the truth is, is that our community has been very anti-Black. 100. Very racist. Very, you know, anti-Indigenous. True. You know what I'm saying? So that's not, a that's not, nobody's making that up. That's actually true. Uh, we've experienced it. We've seen it. I've been called Negra Bambua in Miami around Cubans who think that my li- my lips, because of my lips, ordinaria, you know, she has features that are indicative that she has African blood as if that's negative. So if that's what I've experienced, I can only imagine what people darker than me have experienced. And, you know, to the point where I have two children that I've, I moved out of Miami and I moved to California because I don't want them to grow up around that. I didn't, I didn't want to have a pelo malo complex with my daughter. I didn't, I didn't want none of that. So I, I took them away and I raised them far, far away from that because I didn't want them to experience the pain that my family and I, we did because of that kind of stuff. And when I say Cuban people, I want to make sure that I'm stipulating the racist Cuban people that I specifically endured. I'm not talking about all Cuban people because you have to say this now. And that's not to say that Puerto Ricans, Dominicans, Peruvians, Colombians are not racist either, because we all know that that white supremacy and anti-blackness is a gift they gave us all. And it exists in every corner of the planet. 
and everybody engages in it because it is one of the great tools of capitalism to keep people down. So I, I just want to be clear on that. But so I, you know, I, I've evolved with my declaration of identity. And at the end of the day, the only reason why it matters to me is because it honors my ancestors, because at this point, it really isn't moving us forward. It's not, I love, I'm proud of who I am, but I do want to be connected to my village and my people. And I'm not going to participate in trying to, uh, you know, separate myself from someone because they're darker than me. Uh, or because their hair is different than mine or because their features are different than mine. That doesn't serve us in any way because I know we still come from the same tribe and and we, you know, we vary in spectrums and hues and colors and the way that we look and the way that we take form because we're all pieces of the whole puzzle that's magic. So um, I just don't participate in it and I don't engage in Twitter beefs and I don't allow people who have the idea about who I should be and what I should say. Yeah. Because they're upset mm. with me, but not upset with the system. Like, I just don't get in it anymore because mm -hmm. we take shots at each other so much, but we don't look at the real issue, you know? And that it's, it's like, even with in the Heights, like you can hold Lin-Manuel accountable, which is fine. But it's just interesting to me when you hold Lin-Manuel accountable, mm -hmm. but you don't come for Steven Spielberg with that with that fire, right? You don't go for Sony with that. You just come for Lin-Manuel yes. because a lot of it sometimes has to do with how we feel about ourselves and each other. And there's jealousy involved in that or whatever. Because Lin-Manuel single-handedly can't change what's happening in the in the system. Like he's he's also a symptom of a greater picture, which is this colorism and and this hatefulness that they have for blackness that it, that is actually very prevalent in Hollywood. And and that's not to say you can't hold him accountable, but to hold him fully responsible for the whole thing is just sometimes I feel like some of us are just jealous and we just take we we hate we want his spot. And, you know, I don't think it, Lin Manuel or anybody else is the end all be all for us. I think it's going to take a nation of us to change the narrative of us because he has one specific experience and he can't speak for the people of, you know, Panama or Haiti. So we got to be able to broaden that and we got to demand that the system. Yes. Not one individual, the system <laughs> opens the doors for us. And, you know, and I know people will come for me for this because the people who hate Lynn, you know, just need somebody to exercise their hate on. But I don't hear you. I don't see that. I'm not I'm not participating in that bullshit because. The reality of it is, is that we want to hold each other accountable, but we never look at the system. And you're, you don't have to, whenever you're looking for oppression and who has their foot on your neck, don't look across, look up. That's where it's mm -hmm. coming from. Mm, what is the real source? Yeah, because that's where, that's what you got to go for. Because people are, that are Latinx, Latinos, Latin A in the business are going to always be problematic to us because they cannot possibly tell the experience of the, all the people. So they're going to be mm -hmm. problematic to somebody. And maybe it's people who saw themselves in, in the Heights who had never seen themselves before, regardless of how it made other people feel, them seeing themselves is just as valid, right? Mm -hmm. So what do we do now is create space so that more people can see themselves, right? And that's that's important to say, I want to see, you know, I want to see everybody. I want to see indigenous Latinx people on TV. I want to see Asian Latin A people on TV. 
you know, and all of that can exist while also having black people that are Latinos on TV. That's it. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we have created this thing that is like one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a toxic that that's a gift that's given to us by white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And we got to fight that every step of the way. Yeah. So many gems in, in, in what you were saying. And I think um, going back to Lin Manuel, I think the, the point is really like, yes, let's hold them accountable. But where are we spending our energy? Where are we spending the majority of our energy? Are we spending the majority of our energy in what's really going to change the system? And like just being mindful of, of where we're targeting all that energy. Yeah. I mean, and listen, the 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 erasure of blackness in Hollywood is not only apparent, it is egregious. Mm-hmm. You know, it is especially when it comes to Latinos and Latinx people, because that this white minds, white way of thinking does not want to accept blackness while speaking Spanish. And a lot of that comes from Spain and their influence in the business. You see it in the Telemundos and the Univision, you know, because people, Spain scapegoats itself during Hispanic Heritage Month because they gave us this Hispanic banner where people who speak Spanish, but we, people who speak Spanish, imagine if that happened in English, right? Like if, if white people could say, that they too are, you know, that here during Black History Month, white people were like, this is our month too because we're American. That's what Spaniards do with Hispanic Heritage Month is they be, they're included in something when they were the oppressors in the first place. And I'm not, and I'm not trying to shit on Spaniards now, but the reality of it is, is the truth. So now you get to enjoy the benefits of this. Netflix has this whole Spanish speak the Spanish television and programming under Hispanic Heritage Month. And those are the people who oppressed us. You know, those are our, con- our, our conquistadores. So now we're, we are having to share that. So a lot of these views come from those people because they get to infiltrate our spaces while maintaining positions of power. And that is the greatest, you know, hustle of all time. Yes. So, you know... It can be so frustrating to, because then you sound like you hate Spaniards and, you know, Spaniards did a lot of horrible things to us all over the world. You know, they were some of the most notorious, you know, conquerors. And we just, we have to brush it under the rug because now, because we speak Spanish, it, it's, it's unbelievable. That's not our native tongue. Our language was taken from us, just like us. Our native tongue is Arawak or whatever it is from wherever you're from, taken from us, just like all yeah. the conquerors did, you know? Yes. Colonizers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of like, you know, all the different feelings, it comes back to all the pain that we're sort of, of course, uh, that we're dealing with, that we're facing with some of us for the first time. Of course, we're going to be problematic sometimes because we're still like understanding how white supremacy has like been ingrained in us. We're still unwrapping that. We're still dealing with this pain. Um, like, but I'm also so grateful for what we've been learning. Like, I just, I, I remember growing up, like having to face the fact that like, you know, I'm, I'm Mexican. My background, I guess, is indigenous and, and Spanish, like most, like, like many Mexicans and having to face the fact that, yeah, growing up, we did celebrate the features that were more European or like the fact that we were really tall. And I never, it wasn't like until several years ago that I really put together that that was like 
the white supremacy in like that was ingrained in me and like how I had been. Yeah. No, no, it's true. And we're watching novelas and nobody looks like us. And the people who look like us are the maids. And, you know, we're idolizing these, uh, these novelas like that were, you know, the dark skinned people are always of service and less than, and, you know, I mean, Mexico at least had their own novelas where people like from Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic are watching these Venezolana uh, novelas where the women are all white and blonde. And, you know, and it, it, it messes with your head because then you don't think that you're beautiful because this is the standard of beauty. And where it functions in all languages. It doesn't just function in English. And it is, you know, something that can be very harmful to the psyche and to the self-esteem. And so it's important to call it out when you see it. And I think that, you know, when we talk specifically about people like Puerto Ricans and Mexicans who are pitted against each other, and, you know, Puerto Ricans are pitted against everybody because of their citizenship, which we all know means nothing. If you look at the way Puerto Rico was treated, not just after a hurricane, but before it, it's just you know, it's America's stepchild and people who were deluded into believing that they were coming to America for a better life, that America is this dream place, which is, it is, it is ideal for people that come from places where they don't have the liberty to speak and the liberty to do. Um, But then that that this country is given it and that they take it for granted. And then, you know, and, you know, like I, I was reading this thing about Spanish and it said that the two countries that spoke Spanish the worst were Mexicans and Puerto Ricans. Right. And I'm like, based on like, where does that come from? Who, you know, who says this? Like, and it's just, it's interesting the way it functions all over the world. And there's this hierarchy of, of people supposedly who are better on the spectrum in terms of assuming whiteness or whatever. And it's just it just all it does is just destroy us and destroy our wholeness because we're so divided into these groups that we have no power. And then the white people won't acknowledge that they've been anti-black towards the black people and they won't acknowledge that they've been shitty towards the indigenous people. And they won't acknowledge that that they have more because they are descendants of colonizers like we have all of this stuff happening and it dilutes us and. It's just sad to hear because and read about and to experience because as much as we are in numbers and how we show up, we show up individually and we never use that collective power to really assume our place at the table. And that's what makes me sad. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I mean, we could go on and, and talk about this for forever. I and <laughs> But I think one of the things that you brought up um, just to close on this topic is like the loss of, of nuance. And that feels really important to me. How can we bring nuance back to these conversations? How can we bring grace for each other back to us? Because we're all doing this work. Yeah. We're all undoing the things that we learned and that, that at times are, are problematic. So how can we bring back that grace, that nuance um, to these conversations? Because I, I think that that feels really important to me right now. Well, one of the things that I've learned that I needed to get better at was listen. Um, Because when people say something that makes me feel bad, I react. And I'm like, but, but, and I just had to learn to just be quiet and listen. Um, And 
it doesn't invalidate what I feel, what I have to say. I just have to listen. I have to give space to people who are expressing themselves and what they're saying. And I had a conversation with somebody about the Afro-Latinidad and why it was complicated when I claimed my blackness and why it, it felt like an assault on people who were darker than me. And it really had nothing to do with me thinking I was better than somebody that was dark or me trying to, you know, take something from people who are darker than me. Because that, you could call yourself Afro-Latino, you could call yourself Afro-Indigenous. There are no benefits in any of it. Like there's no, you know what I mean? It's not like I'm doing it because I'm trying to get a check or I'm trying, there's no benefits in it. It's really part of my, how I, how I was raised into in knowing who I was and that mm-hmm. things have evolved and we change. And like in America, they used to call people colored and now, and then it evolved to black. And then some people call themselves African-American. That's how it's happened. We're not exempt from that. You know, I think it's important to listen. And I think it's important to insist upon discussing nuance. You have to insist upon it because you will get bullied into it and we will never have a real conversation. Because if people want to hear, if people want to have a conversation just to hear what they want to hear, I'm not interested in having a conversation with those people. They're not interested in solution. I can see somebody who's problematic and know that their intentions are to move us forward. And I know somebody who says all the right things and is super, super performative and could give a shit about us. And I'd rather talk to that problematic person and figure out a way with that person because they honestly want to learn and they want to grow, do the work and move us forward than to be in front of somebody who's saying all the right things because they're getting checks and likes and follows. And I'm not interested in those people. Yeah, I love that. All right. So we'll stop there, but we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. At Tamarindo, we like to say our show is at the intersection of advocacy and self-care. We want our listeners to be well so they can have the kind of impact they want in their communities. And I feel like through your comedy, you do exactly that. It's both healing and inspiring. And it's even more powerful knowing what's behind the stories that fuel your work. So I wanted to ask you, what advice might you give to people who are perhaps in a tough point in their lives right now? So uh, I journal, right? And and I insist upon uh, the audio journals for people who can't read and write because my grandmother was uh, illiterate and one of the smartest people I ever met in my life. And I always think about her So because everyone can't read and write. So if you can't read and write, you have I know you have a phone. Use the voice recorder on your phone. Um, I go back... Um, I chronicle my life and one of the tools that I use to help me is I'll go back to something and read about something that was happening in my life that was really dark and take the moment to acknowledge that it's behind me because that remi- that is a reminder that this too shall pass no matter how hard it feels. And I mean like really dark times in my life where I've even considered suicide and I have had to sit down and say, hey, Let's think about the things that have happened. How bad is this on the spectrum? This is nothing compared to the loss of a child. This is nothing compared to, you know, anything that has happened that's been really dark. 
And I got over that. I mean, I don't think you ever get over losing someone, but you just get used to living life without them. But whatever it was, I made it over. And I continue to remind myself of those things. Um, I think it's important to shut the noise out and take a moment and a beat and hear yourself, feel yourself. You have to be able to disconnect. Um, It's always important to sit down and write a plan when you feel like you're out. Write yourself out of the plan. Talk yourself out of the plan. Think yourself out of the plan, uh, out of of the situation. Okay, I'm in this, I was in a situation where I didn't have a home. I didn't have a car, I didn't have money, and I had two kids, and I wasn't getting help from their father. So I had to figure out, okay, what's it going to take? And for me, it took a plan. Like I was like, I'm not going to get in the house in six months, not with this situation. So what? what's it going to take? I'm going to need this amount of money to move into this place. And so I had to sit down and write, I write everything down. That's the way I get through things. Yeah, beautiful. Okay. So I know, uh, you're a busy woman right now. Mm-hmm. What are you most excited about? That's, that's coming up. That's in your horizon that you can share. Cause I know sometimes y'all can't share some things. <laughs> right. Well, honestly, um, I have some projects that are in the works with, um, some companies, you know, like I have a, a animated show and I have, I have a TV show that I'm working on and I have some things in the works, but the most, the things that I'm most in, uh, excited about is the the stuff that I'm creating on my own that is separate from the machine. Like I'm writing a short film right now that I'm about to shoot. I'm going to produce it, direct it, star in it. I'm very excited about that. Um, I'm excited about the things that I'm creating on my own um, where I don't have the, I don't feel like I'm in bondage because when we sit around and wait on the machine and institutions to do stuff for us, we become dependent on them. But then we, the way we feel about ourselves is connected to that. So if they say no, or they postpone, you go up and down. And I had to disconnect from that because that was driving me crazy. So I had to sit down and say, what am I going to create? What I'm I'm doing this web series that I'm going to shoot that I wrote myself. I'm shooting a short film and I'm writing a feature film. I've made feature films before independently and then sold them. So I am getting ready to do that again. Because even in this wave of HBO Max and all this stuff that has happened, I uh, I had to just regroup and re- remind myself that uh, I don't belong to any machine and that I can do, I can create art. If I'm in it for the art, then I can create it. If I'm in it for the fame and the money, then I have to be dependent on them. And so for me, I'm, I'm a true artist. It's about making good work, telling the stories. And so... What I'm most excited about is my own stuff that I'm creating that I'm getting ready to make. Mm, I love that. So just like getting back to like just doing things just for you and finding the, the joy in that, because it sounds like in some of the other stuff, like it's there's some sparks of joy, but there's also a lot of frustration. Thambian. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, I'm excited to see the show. I'm excited to see everything you're working on. Um, so now we're moving to the part of our show where we have our rapid fire questions. And so I'm going to ask you first, what's something that you want to give a matraca to? So this is something that that you're loving, person, place, thing, concept. You know what? I'm going to say food, Um, especially our food. I have had such a love-hate relationship with food for such a long time. I have suffered from an eating disorder and food became my enemy. 
And I am now getting to a place where I can embrace food. Food is a connector to me, my mother, my grandmother, my sister, my daughter, my niece. Mm. And so just learning to appreciate food for it being a blessing to nourish our bodies, to maintain our customs, to, uh, you know, to show, express love within our child. I mean, like Water for Chocolate is my favorite movie. And it's mm. and it's because of the food, you know. So yes. as I do this work and helping myself heal from this wound that has been connected to food, I'm learning to be grateful and appreciated and understand what it really is. It's, it is not a trap. It is not the enemy. It is love, and we gotta we gotta remember that. Ooh, I love that so much. It is not a trap. It is love. Powerful. I'm, t- I'm taking that one with me in terms of how okay. I'm seeing food and connecting with food. I love that. Este, okay. How about what do you want to put in la basura? What I want to put in the basura is toxic ideologies. <laughs> we have so many people spreading these toxic ideologies. And I'm not talking about Republicans versus Democrats. I'm talking about everybody. The lack of information, people uh, perpetuating the worst about us and giving us misinformation to drive us because through our fears, I really would love to throw away all these toxic ideologies that have caused so much harm in humanity. Yes, I love that. We actually did just did an episode on on toxico and toxica, and that's a really good reminder. How are our actions? Are we creating, causing more harm? Yep. Or more healing. And if what we're doing is causing more harm, even if we have a good intention, can we change how we approach that situation and, and, and what our actions are? Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Um, all right. And then lastly, what is giving you calma? So this is something that's keeping you grounded right now. Uh, what keeps me grounded right now is my family. My yes. family keeps me grounded. They've been very connected, uh, very intuitive and understanding in this moment. They've been present. My daughter, my son, my sister, my brothers, they've been very present. And the last year has been very turbulent for me. I met my father for the first time in June. There was a lot of stuff connected to that. So I would say my family is what keeps me calm. Yeah. I know earlier you said how important it is to have that counsel. Yeah. Seek wise counsel. Yeah, whether that's your biological family, your chosen family, but how that's right. finding that counsel and, and nurturing those relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're about to get to the end of the show. So I just want you know, I want you to share with, with our folks where can people find you, support you, laugh with you, all, all the things. So funny now, um, you can go to HBO Max, watch my special uh, Fighting Words, and you can watch my Day Ready on Netflix. I am on Twitter at Funny Aida, A-I-D-A, and on Facebook, it's Aida.Rodriguez. My Instagram page got hacked a couple of days ago, so it disappeared, and we're trying to get it back. Uh, so if we get it back, it's Funny Aida, A-I-D-A, and if not, it will be another handle when we figure it out. <laughs> That's how you know you, uh, quote unquote, made it when your Instagram gets hacked. And I didn't care. And you know what's funny? I was relieved. I was just like, I thought I would be, I was just like, oh, and the last few days I haven't been on Instagram and it's been so peaceful. That's another calma right there. Facts. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to do this thing where I completely unplug for at least 30 minutes a day, like actually turn everything off. And that's crazy that you, that I've gotten to that point where it like has to be a big deal. 
Yeah, it's an addiction and you have to be mindful of it um, because it doesn't show up as an addiction because of how we register addiction, but it is, and it's very toxic and it's constantly, it's images constantly being fed to your subconscious mind that uh, make you feel less than in all areas because everybody's just posting what they want you to see as opposed to what's real. Yes. Um, well, Ida, it has been a joy to spend time with you, to learn Same. from you. We're so grateful that you spent this much time with us and, and gave us all of your brilliance and todo. Muchas gracias. No, igualmente. Thank you. And I'll be back. We would love that. Absolutely. Have a beautiful day. Take care. Oh my gosh, what a delight. And I want to give a special shout out to our friend of the pod, Alma Lopez from Alma Explores, who hooked it up and connected us to Aida. So big shout out to Alma Explores. Y'all should check her out. So Anasheda, to close out today, we would love to share some tips that we picked up from our listeners about meditating. So here's the thing. I'm, I am unable to, to meditate. I, I pretty much don't try anymore. It's not something that, that I do, but I was hoping maybe our listeners might have some tips for me in case I want to experiment with this. So I posed it to our listeners, you know, what tips do you have for those of us that struggle to meditate? And they, they came back with some great ideas that I thought our listeners might want to hear. And do you have any additional tips? So maybe I'll have you do. What do you tell people when they're saying they're struggling to meditate? Anna Shayla? Well, the first thing I, I tell people is like, don't, focus so much on the fact that you're struggling to meditate. <laughs> like everyone has thoughts, like your thoughts are going to come in. So just keep coming back to your breath and just keep focusing on that breath. Like just like as you're breathing in, just really thinking about the breath so that you can sort of block out as many thoughts coming in, but they're going to come in. So the less that you stress out about how you can't meditate, the better that you're going to meditate. So that's like my first tip. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's along the lines of what folks said. So here's a here's a tip. So uh, pink means go on Instagram said, be kind to yourself when you start to meditate. Try to find a place with minimal distractions. Start with just two minutes a day. I like that. Just to, you know, start small. Here's another tip from Doctor Oh Dra Paula HB on Instagram. And that person says, when I started, I had no clue, but there's more than one way to, and philosophy to meditate and different things like breath, mantras, nature sounds that you can use to help you. If you try one way and it doesn't work, give another a chance and try a different approach. What do you think of that? Yes, 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 yes. I always use um, music, music with no words. And that's really helpful for me. It, gets, it helps me get in the mood, helps me feel like all spiritual. Yes. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, this one's in Spanish. And so I'll try to simultaneously translate, but I think it's, it's really great messaging. It's sort of similar with what you started with Anishela. but this person says, you know, our main, our mind is made of thoughts and it has to think and it has to analyze. And so it's always naming things. So instead of like trying to silence these thoughts that come in, just like name them, identify them and say, Oh, there you are thought. So that's sort of the gist of, of that, that, instruction. I like that. Here's another one. Label the thought like a channel on TV. You don't have to watch it even if it's on. You can also gently bring your awareness back into the sensation of your body and say in your head, I'm aware of my breath. I'm aware of my breath. Oh wait, actually, let me try this again. Look at this. I'm so bad at, at uh, meditating. I can't even read. So let me try this again. She says, I'm aware of my in-breath. I'm aware of my out breath. Boom. <laughs> Got it down that second time. So 
those are some good tips. And I just thought, you know what, my, maybe my listeners, our listeners, our listeners would like to um, also get these tips that I took away. So with that, uh, we want to remind you all that we're having an event March 1st. Check it out with our notes and also on our website at tamarindopodcast.com. Mm -hmm. And uh, we hope you love this episode and then you share it with a friend. Yes, please. Cuídense, y'all. Hasta luego. Ponte un suéter. Bye, y'all. Tamarindo Podcast is Brenda Gonzalez and Anashayla Victorino. Our producers are Mitzi Hernandez and Augusto Martinez of Sonoro Media. Our theme song is by Jeff Ricards. If you want to support our work, please rate and review Tamarindo Podcast on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend. Get in touch with us at tamarindopodcast.com. Cuando mi arrendador dijo que el alquiler podría ser más barato si fuéramos amigos con beneficios. Había oído hablar de acoso sexual en el lugar de trabajo, pero en mi casa. Eso es discriminación en la vivienda basada en el sexo. La gente de bienes raíces dijo que estaríamos más cómodos viviendo en un vecindario diferente con gente como nosotros. Por suerte conocíamos nuestros derechos. Es ilegal asustar a los posibles propietarios para que se alejen de ciertos vecindarios en función de raza o nacionalidad. Si usted cree que sufrió discriminación o tiene preguntas sobre sus derechos, comuníquese con Fair Housing Foundation, Fundación de Vivienda Justa, al 800-446-3247 o también en línea en fhfca.org. La vivienda justa es su derecho. Este es un anuncio de servicio público de Fair Housing Foundation y respaldado por el Departamento de Vivienda y Desarrollo Urbano HUD bajo la subvención de FIPPI, FPEI, 220099 It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.